Yep. I don't mind. I don't mind whatever. Okay, so, um, well, I'll just, for my own sake, um, yeah. So, this feels feels The moment you decide. Yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) (laughs) Always edit. (laughs) So, this feels terribly awkward, but, uh, all right, so the plan here is to host a podcast. Uh, We're calling this the History of Christian... No, wait, a history of Christian theology. Um, yes. And uh, I tried to come up with more clever titles, but supposedly this is the best way uh, to get people to actually click on it, so we'll see. So, a history of Christian theology. Um, I'm Chad Kim. We have uh, Trevor Adams and Tom Velasco. All right. Hello, and welcome to a history of Christian theology. This week, we'll have the second half of our conversation on the Gospel of Thomas. Last week, we had an episode where we talked about the background and dating of this probably second century text that purports to be a gospel to say something about the nature of Jesus, but it's primarily just sayings. It's actually entirely just sayings of Jesus Christ. In this episode, Tom, Trevor, and I will discuss whether or not this should be called a Gnostic text and what other philosophical and theological issues from reading this text. We'd like to say thank you to Blake Whitlow and Will Ferris uh, for their comments on our blog. And we would really appreciate any comments that you guys have, things that you would like to hear, uh, issues that you'd like us to discuss, or any questions even that you might have from the podcast. Please come to our uh, blog at a history of Christian theology. This week I will be updating a post that will give a little background to our methodology and the way in which we are going about this podcast and why we are going about it as we are. Now here's the second half of our conversation. Maybe that's a place to start in the conversation is what what is the picture of Jesus that emerges? Uh, What do you mean by that? Um, Well, I just... You know, like, I feel like most of the time the Gospel of Thomas is referenced to talk about the truth of some of the canonical Gospels. Oh, okay, so if it's in the Gospel of Thomas, then that means whatever Jesus says is true. Or let's do this for dating. Um, Or let's talk about how the early Christians tried to shun the Gnostics uh, and, you know, call them heretics and disqualify anything that they would have to say. Um, as a sort of just a power play, like it's pure power uh, and there's nothing else going on there. So I wanted to just say like, cause when I was reading the gospel of Thomas, I kept thinking to myself, this half of this doesn't make any sense. Um, yeah. No. Oh, right. I mean the, the parts that I actually wrote question marks next to any passage that I didn't, that I thought was nonsensical. And I mean, I mean, they're just all over the place. My question marks, <laughs> they're literally all over the place. I mean, a number of things that are said, well, might as well share an example, right? Um, Jesus said, when you see one who was not born of woman, prostrate yourself on your faces and worship him. That one is your father. (laughs) (laughs) Like, what? Um, Or this one, Jesus said, have you discovered then the beginning that you look for the end? For where the beginning is, there will the end be. Blessed is he who will take his place in the beginning. He will know the end and will not experience death. Now you gotta read seven. Seven is the best. Seven. Blessed. Oh yeah. Blessed is the lion which becomes man when consumed by man, and cursed is the man 
whom the lion consumes, and the lion becomes man. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, those are legitimate verses <laughs> in the Gospel of Thomas. Literally, somebody wrote that. I mean, it sounds like a third grader who's trying to write spiritual stuff, who's like, who like watched uh, or who read some Deepak Chopra. It's a third grader who read Deepak Chopra. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. To me, it's like, to me, it's like, it seems, um, which this is reminiscent of even, I guess, modern day pseudo Christian cults and things. But it's like, you just use the language use some orthodox language, say some stuff that sounds like it would have been, you know, oh, you know, they might have said this or, you know, they use this phrase and then just package it that way. But then at the end of the day, be saying nothing at all. Like, yeah. which I guess you can get away with when you talk in parables, which kind of made me question whether parables was even a good idea on Jesus' uh, uh, like front but 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 jesus's parables are so very different i mean the thing about this language is the language of the gospel of thomas and to be to be clear for our listeners the gospel of thomas doesn't not only include those kinds of verses it also includes a number of passages that are taken straight out of the synoptic gospels so yeah i mean there's a a bunch of what is written in there's a bunch of, of texts in the gospel of thomas that are well, they sound canonical. I mean, they sound like something Jesus would absolutely say. But then there's all sorts of weird stuff, which is clearly, I think, uh, Eastern philosophy. I mean, Eastern philosophy of the kind that did not overlap or connect with Hebraic philosophy, like with with uh, with Talmudic uh, scholarship. It did not connect. You know, Chad, you said you didn't want to talk too much about the dating issues with the Gospel of Thomas, like how old it is or, you know, anything like that. I, but I just wanted to say, like, it seems like the popular scholarship's agenda is to try to take this and debunk um, believers who are trying to look at the canonical Gospels. Um, and, you know, on some level, I think it is a helpful text. Like, there's some re- there are things that can be read. And I don't want to just say that, oh, scholars are trying to attack the faithful. However, I want to also be clear, the parts that are similar are interesting. But way more interesting are the parts that diverge or at least like way more confusing why you would think that this has a whole lot to do with the four canonical gospels is a bit beyond me insofar as the majority of this is just nonsense. The lion becoming the man who consumes the man, you know, (laughs) I mean, a woman must become a man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Some of these, I mean, like, well, how credible can this thing be? Actually, before we go off, just because you alluded to it, Trevor wanted to make sure we read it. The best passage in this text, which is what you just referenced. So let's read it straight up. This is chapter 114 or section 114. Simon Peter said to them, let Mary leave us for women are not worthy of life. <laughs> okay, so first of all, I would like to add, horrible. people accuse the New Testament of being misogynistic. There is nothing like that in the New Testament. Women are not worthy of life. Jesus' response is, Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit resembling you males. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, 
I, I don't know that I've ever read anything that misogynistic in my life. <laughs> I, know, I mean, that's, that's <laughs> women are not worthy of life, it says. Right? Oh, man. That is, that has, that is in, in no way reflects anything that Jesus uh, says. And can I add something? You, you mentioned how there's a, there are two different camps amongst modern scholars, some who apply an early date uh, to this and some who apply a later date. Uh, what are the dates on that, you know? Like the early date. Some people think that it's before Mark. So they'll say 50 or 60 AD. And then others Get will say. Here. No way. No way. Okay. This is easy, like 200s. This has got to be, like, I the, would think. My, so now, granted, so just again, for those who are listening, it's not like we're scholars when it comes to uh, to lower criticism, to, yeah. to, to determining when and where texts are written. But I do have one basic point to make and that is as i said before the gospel of thomas is heavily influenced by uh asian philosophy by by i should say far asian philosophy like stuff coming out of india you know like hindu philosophy that kind of stuff there is no way that a jew which is what jesus was <laughs> would have spoken in these ways and nor would a, nor would i mean it purports to have been written by thomas who was also a Jew, he wouldn't have written in this manner either. There's no way that this predates the canonical gospel. Yeah, I don't remember what it's called, but I took, since I just graduated, I took Eastern philosophy like uh, either last year or maybe it was a year before. I don't remember. But I remember there was something, and I don't, and I don't remember the term for this, but basically when in Eastern philosophy, especially the wisdom literature of like Confucius and stuff, it was super common to have this technique of say something like, what is white will one day be black and what is black will one day be white. And to do this kind of, uh, they, a yin and yang they, contrast. They call, yeah. They called it like the union of the opposites, yeah. which, mm. which is actually weirdly reminiscent of early Greek philosophy. Um, some, some of the early Greek philosophers, pre-Socratics, mm -hmm. We're really uh, into doing that as well. But it, they were interested in ways in which, and it was essentially just clever wordplay, but they thought maybe they were making like a deep kind of metaphysical point. But when uh, they could say something was both this and this at the same time, when something seemed to have in it contradictory properties. And this definitely does that. Like it will just say like, if you're this, then you're this. But if you're this, then you're not this. And it's, yeah. it has a lot of that. So, I mean, it's yeah. like very clearly Eastern inspired. Very, very reminiscent of Taoism, right? I mean, again, the yin and yang, the, the opposites. Yeah. Um, what I would like to bring up, which I think is almost more interesting than arguments about where it came from, is how the Gospel of Thomas has come to, I don't know, just be favored in our modern culture. I, I don't mean by scholars. I mean by laymen. Uh, there is, there does, it seems to me, tend to be this kind of movement against, obviously not your average guy on the street, but the people who have maybe college degrees, who have some degree of education, who find the Gospel of Thomas really fascinating. And I think, again, I, I don't want to pigeonhole people or oversimplify, but I think a lot of it has to do with this feeling that people have to reject the Christianity of their youth that they may have been brought up in. And they find this different Jesus who's described in the gospel of Thomas 
they think of him as they think of this book as being very old and they say to themselves well maybe this is who jesus really was and so uh they find it attractive an attractive alternative um by embracing it they kind of escape c.s lewis's famous lord liar lunatic argument um the lord liar lunatic argument is an argument directed towards those people who would say that jesus was a good moral teacher but not god right uh and so the problem that Lewis brings up is, is Jesus says some pretty crazy things if he's not the son of God himself. Uh, things that would make him either a horrible liar that is a manipulator who's uh, megalomaniacal, who's trying to get everybody to worship him, or a lunatic uh, if he's not the actual Lord. But what the Gospel of Thomas and texts like it enable people to do is to say, well, this one, it's a little more ambiguous whether or not he thinks he's God. Um, and we like this one. And so maybe this is the actual Jesus. So they can escape the trilemma uh, by basically taking a fourth alternative, by taking one of these other Gospels. I mean, the, you know, we talked about the Dan Brown thing, Chad, right? The, you know, you and I hate the, the whole Dan Brown thing in our culture. But I think people's embracing of the Gospel of Thomas is similar to that, which I think is bizarre because the Gospel of Thomas is like, I, like we have already read. So patently misogynistic um uh and dan brown seems to be very big on feminism uh, i would say so it's very odd but I, I feel like people who fall into the dan brown camp are fans of the gospel of thomas because it puts forward an alternate uh narrative interestingly um so i was at princeton seminary at princeton university there's a woman called elaine pagels who has sort of made her uh name by looking at the lost christianities um and other you know sources from around the period she's also a woman she's also very strong in the sort of feminist camp and what have you and of course yeah of course like the very last verse of 114 i want to say why would you even want to consider this as part of christianity or something that's all that worthwhile and helpful uh, i mean she actually went to the church as i recall she went to the church that i went to um <laughs> but i mean i would think also if you're the early church and you live in like a patriarchal society and especially some societies that adopted Christianity would have been super sexist anyway, probably back then. I mean, they didn't, to me, this just shows how honest they were about accepting things into the canon. They just saw this and clearly were like, no, oh, no, this is not authentic because if they were just doing it for doctrinal points or because they wanted I mean, this either just shows their moral fortitude in the sense that they really thought, you know, for, they were forward thinking about gender equality, or it shows that they were even willing, even if they were a bunch of sexist people, which maybe modern scholars would argue, they didn't, they didn't just accept it to help their cause. Like, look, see, Jesus agrees. Like, yeah. males are awesome. Like, I, I, to me, it at least it shows that this is just not authentic in any sense of the sense of the word but well and when you look at debates by early fathers on what counts as scripture nobody includes this nobody i mean you it's yeah. just not a book that's referenced it there is reference of it um irenaeus calls it um heresy yeah sorry i meant yeah. there's no reference in <laughs> i meant there's no reference in terms of, of asserting it as being authoritative yeah 
Yeah, well, so in this Pagel's introduction, she has this campaign against heresy involved an involuntary admission of its persuasive power, yet bishops prevailed. By the time of Emperor Constantine's conversion, Christianity became an officially approved religion. Christian bishops, uh, victimized by the police, now commanded them. Possessions of books denounced as heretical or made a criminal offense. Copies of such books were burned and destroyed. And, and they go on to talk about the per- – she goes on to somewhere she talks about the persecution. And she jumps about 200 years from Irenaeus to Constantine to get into the whole power, the power of Constantine, the putting down of these books as if to say, you know, they didn't want you to know what was hidden within uh, because it might br- destroy your faith. I think Irenaeus didn't want you to read it. Because it's kind of crap, you know. <laughs> I, I yeah. mean, and, and well, probably because the Christians were not loving women and loving children and slaves, um, <laughs> and they didn't want this to be associated with them, which makes perfect sense. Once again, we come to the realization that it's all Constantine's fault. Remember <laughs> that, children. If you've learned anything from this podcast, remember that every scholar in the world will tell you that everything can be pinned on Constantine. Now, I mean, it's just so infuriating. I, I think it's, I think it is pretty clear that the uh, obsession, which was a good one that the, you know, early church fathers had with apostolic succession and things being uh, sourced from an apostle, essentially, I, I think clearly is what, led them to reject this i mean they probably would have known at the time and some of the apostles were alive or apostles associates were alive and they're just like yeah no this came out left field yeah. nobody wrote this you know like well irenaeus was a student of uh justin right he's a student of ignatius who's a student of john i believe right yeah by the way can i do just a little soapbox thing again <laughs> think right. coming back this woman who uh you're who you're quoting who you're referencing who is kind of I don't know, embracing the gospel of Thomas, if you will, and this anti-feminist, this misogynistic passage in, it just makes me think again of a Dan Brown thing. I, I don't want to spend too much time over the course of our time on this show making fun of Dan Brown, but in the Da Vinci Code, he actually asserts that Western society, that Greece and Rome were matriarchal before Christianity came to, like, came to the forefront, before evil Constantine converted and made everybody Christian and imposed a patriarchal society, he actually asserted that they were matriarchal beforehand, which, again, if you're listening out there, that's absurd. The Greeks and the Romans worshipped Zeus. Well, the Greeks called him Zeus, the Romans Jupiter. That dude was as patriarchal as they come. I mean, half of the myths were about him raping women. I mean, it was not a matriarchal society. That's not to say there weren't certain forms of matriarchal paganism but it wasn't greece and rome and it wasn't the predominant paganism of the day that christianity replaced so again there are these narratives that that these pseudo historians are creating that are just not the case i mean they're they're as far from from what actually happened as can be yeah I may have mentioned this on the podcast, but my favorite form of uh, of, uh, patriarchalism in the Greco-Roman myths is uh, from the Oresteia when Zeus says that we don't even need women for birth because Athena came from the head of Zeus. Uh, (laughs) That's true, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which is so patently absurd. I 
even that though, I don't know if that is as bad as this passage in the Gospel of Thomas. <laughs> yeah. No, maybe not, but it's just that it's such a funny story. You know? Oh yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Trevor, sorry, I think I cut you off. The apostolic obsession of the early church fathers and the fact uh, that combined with the fact that they easily denounced this pretty early on, to me, doesn't show that they're trying to hide some secret. It's just more that they are obsessed with it being authentic. And if they couldn't confirm it was connected to an apostle who sat with Jesus and listened to Jesus actually talk, they pretty much, I think, were willing to throw it out full cloth. So, yeah. And I don't think, I mean, it's it's hard to say that there's some secret agenda. I mean, other than that, that really horrible thing said right at the end, which I'd imagine they didn't want connected with them. I mean, the rest of it's just weird. It's not necessarily bad. Yeah. It just is nonsensical and strange. Yeah. And so I, I think it's just clear that, oh, we have some agenda and it's a it's just a conspiracy theory. People, I think, just like conspiracy theories. And when it's history, you're like more you're more willing to assert crazy things like this. I mean, I think that's why Ancient Aliens is a TV show. You know, we're reading this as a late source, so we're reading this as um, technically, you know, it's considered heretical very early on. We're reading it because it's written about this peer, uh, about this uh, late second century. We're gonna, I think, most of us would be in consensus that is a late second century document. So it fits within this period. Um, it's kind of a, it's it's kind of a little example of the sort of stuff that isn't accepted by the tradition and maybe why it's not. So as we are trying to figure out the theology. Um, I'd like to think for a minute, a little for maybe a little longer, as to what kind of picture emerges of Jesus. What kind of a person is the Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas? So theology is concerned with the the study of God and what kind of God is revealed. The Jesus revealed here. What is the Jesus revealed in the Gospel of Thomas? I mean, how how would you characterize? Uh, the, I mean, I guess we've talked about this a little bit, the Taoist, the Eastern. But is there anything else that we want to add to that? Um, uh... I guess there's some dualism. So there's some dualism. Uh, there's definitely, there's definitely, I don't, but then even then it's, this is why this thing is so just stupid. It contradicts itself even in that regard, because there'll be times when you're blessed if you regard your body. And then there's times where you're not blessed. If you yeah. just, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's very strange, but there's, it's definitely a God who praises fasting and and other works um i i remember reading reading about that um and i don't know can you can you think of anything else yeah well i mean what you said is right there's so people often call this gospel a gnostic gospel um and it certainly has passages in it that sound gnostic i mean um i've you know i've labeled certain passages uh, in the text here that strike me as being especially Gnostic. It seems to me that most of the really, you know, so like, for instance, at the start of the book, it says, whoever finds the interpretation of these sayings will not experience death. So the idea being that I'm giving you something that has a secret meaning. And if you could only understand, then you won't die. So that sounds very Gnostic. Um, but then on the other hand, there are passages like in section 28, where Jesus said, I took my place in the midst of the world and I appeared to them in the flesh. 
And so right there, it's certainly, that certainly contradicts docetism, which we've talked about, the idea that Jesus just appeared as in the flesh, wasn't really in the flesh. There are other forms of Gnosticism, but at the same time, this seems to be asserting that Jesus the Christ came in the flesh, which rejects the whole Gnostic notion of matter being evil. Um, uh, there was there's some other ones that are really strange as well. He also he, yeah, and he also does admit to because they they take that passage from uh, one of the gospels about you know your your mom and sister are outside and he goes oh you know he is my yeah they they it's not the same but there's a passage similar to that passage where it talks about him having family members so that would kind of if they're calling him his mother their mother um that would also kind of imply that she was it, actually his mother yeah yeah, yeah well he a, does also say in 105 he who knows father and mother will be called son of a harlot yeah again that's a weird one it doesn't clearly endorse a gnostic teaching i mean it that, that's why I, you know the gospel of thomas as much as i would absolutely scoff at the idea that it predates the synoptic gospels uh as much as i would scoff at that Nonetheless, I don't know what his point is. I don't know what he's getting at. I think it predates most other Gnostic texts. The, the only thing that seems super Gnostic is the beginning, where it's just, right. if you read all, you'll have eternal life. And that seems like, or if, well, it's someone who comes to understand it, I suppose, is one who will have eternal life. And I thought, I was like, man, that's kind of gospel-esque, because Jesus did imply, essentially, if you understand these parables... Few has ears, let him hear. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just kind of like this seems like the kind of thing you'd sell. You'd yeah. go, "Hey, buy this, man!" Because if you read it, understand it, I have eternal life, and it's just which that's a pretty gnostic notion, I suppose. But I, I would add just kind of with that a couple of passages that do seem gnostic um, that I came across. One. Chapter 29 or section 29, Jesus said, if the flesh came into being because of spirit, it is a wonder. But if the spirit came into being because of the body, it is a wonder of wonders. Indeed, I am amazed at how this great wealth has made its home in this poverty. So there he seems to poo-poo the flesh and praise the spirit. And then there's this, which is, it's kind of Gnostic, and it certainly appeals to modern culture. In that section 70, Jesus said, that which you have will save you if you bring it forth from yourselves. That which you do not have within you will kill you if you do not have it within you. Um, And so it seems to be this self-salvation message almost, like you have the power within yourself to save yourself. There are some Gnostic things in there, but not a proliferation. There aren't a ton. It's not clearly just endorsing one Gnostic view. Right, yeah. Um, I would add too. Chad already mentioned it, but just so our listeners are aware, there are a lot of books called the Gospel of Thomas. Tons. In fact, when we first agreed to do this, there was miscommunication between us as to which one we would read. Uh, and I think Chad, you read the Infancy Gospel of Thomas right. first. Which, by the way, if you audience want to read something absurd, read the Infancy <laughs> Gospel of Thomas, um, where it tries to recount Jesus as a child. And it's, it's obnoxious. I mean, he's just killing everybody because he has the power to do so. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that truly a third grader would write. If somebody said, picture a story with a character who can do anything and do it. I mean, it's just atrocious, that, that book. But there are, lots of, there are lots of ancient writings ascribed to 
Thomas or Peter or Paul or James or John, and we're not going to get to them. I mean, it's uh, it's good for us to cover this. We're not going to cover it primarily because, as Chad pointed out earlier uh, in the podcast, not today, but you know, back in episode one, I think, or two, he pointed out that the focus of our study will be what is considered orthodox Christian theology is taught by the church. We wanted to take this little side road to make sure that everybody was aware that these books like the Gospel of Thomas are out there. The Gospel of Thomas of all of these is the oldest and the most has the most claim to some kind of, I don't know, authenticity or something. Nothing, everything else is patently written by a Gnostic who's just trying to make an argument uh, that you should listen to him. Just slapping a name. Just slapping a name on it, exactly. Famous name on it, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think that pretty much covers it. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening this week to A History of Christian Theology. This is the last podcast that we will be doing on the Gospel of Thomas. And starting next week, you will hear a two-part podcast on Justin Martyr's first apology, where we will have my friend Caleb Frizz, who is a self-proclaimed atheist, Um, Give us his take on Justin Martyr's argument in the Apology. Following the two episodes on the Apology, we will have an episode on the second Apology of Justin and then the dialogue with Trifo before we begin Irenaeus' Against Heresies. Again, please visit our blog at ahistoryofchristiantheology.com and our Facebook page, A History of Christian Theology. Thank you so much for listening.